Welcome to the CP Podcast. My name is Jacob Ashworth. I'm the Artistic Director of Cantata Profana. I'm here today with Alice Tezier, who is our soprano soloist for our January show, Visions of Silence, January 18 and 19 at St. Peter's Church, Chelsea. Uh, we are doing this fantastic and, and really fascinating, interesting concert of very meditative and spiritual works from uh, the 17th century, the 19th century, the 20th century. And with me as well is Gleb Kanasevich, our clarinetist and associate artistic director of Cantata Profana this year. Um, So why don't we just jump in with a little bio. Tell us a bit of who am I, who you are and how you got (laughs) here and what you do and what you like to do. I am someone who um, can't commit to a single thing. So I've had sort of dichotomies in my whole life. Uh, I am from a French family, grew up in the Midwest, in Minnesota. Started playing the piano early, but then added flute and added singing. And the piano sort of fizzled away, but the flute and the singing kept kind of juggling each other. And uh, I wasn't really able to pick one or the other. So I ended up at Oberlin Conservatory, where... They kind of don't frown as much as other places on that type of thing. And I did a double major there, stuck around for a master's in opera theater, where I was sort of given this amazing chance to do a very fascinating role, which was Alice Renee in Olga Narvid's Lost Highway. So that was sort of my sort of master's thesis role, which was amazing and worked with Olga very closely. Uh, And Oberlin is the type of place that a lot of things open up um, that you might not have spent a lot of time doing before you come into a conservatory setting. So all the early music activity that was happening there was something that really fascinated me. All the contemporary music activity there is a huge part of the um, kind of ethos of Oberlin, certainly was at the time that I was there, Um, very much influenced by the conductor of the Oberlin Contemporary Music Ensemble, Tim Weiss, who's a huge mentor for me and continues to be. And I formed a little group uh, out there that sort of modeled itself on, you know, the ice, the ice and uh, eighth blackbird types that had come before us and sort of kept doing things like that while I was doing um, a specialization degree after Oberlin out in Strasbourg. I moved back to France and um, worked on a lot of... Uh, Sharino, amongst other things, with an uh, incredible flute teacher, Mario Caroli, out there. And yeah, at that point, I was sort of like letting voice drip to the wayside, which I realized was not an acceptable thing for my mental state and for my emotional well-being. So I was very fortunate to kind of have early music through the great generosity of harpsichordist Lisa Crawford, who invited me to do a concert in Paris while I was living in France. Um, and yeah, kind of brought me back into my singing persona. I'm very, very grateful to her for that. Since then, I've sort of been going back and forth with uh, with the two kind of musical avenues that I have. Um, I moved to Freiburg for a couple years where I had an early music ensemble kind of as um, as a way of really investigating in in some ways pieces that you wouldn't otherwise like you guys keep calling it the top 40 broke um things that might lurk under the top 40 um and found some incredible things uh with my partners in uh, my group Per la Pizarra 
And then I thought um, it might be interesting to do some doctoral work. And, um, <laughs> you know, it's, it's that, that. never-ending <laughs> academic cycle. But in fact, I was very happy to have had a couple years outside of uh, the university or the conservatory before launching back in. And um, the place that I ended up was the University of California, San Diego, which is historically, you know, really amazing place for specializing in experimental music and contemporary music, where I worked uh, primarily with Susan Naruki and kind of allowed my voice to mature there, which was really important for me. And also took a bunch of essentially what you can call philosophy courses. Mm. And that has really opened up how I think about performing, how I think about singing, how I engage with the world, um, my priorities in life. And just as I was kind of getting ready to, you know, put my flute down, or at least mostly put my flute down and have mostly a singing career... I got a call from Claire Chase of International Contemporary Ensemble asking if I'd be interested in coming to play with the group. That's a call you don't say no to. So <laughs> then I moved to New York and started playing, primarily playing with Ice. Um, and um, little by little, I've been also adding adding some singing projects with the group, but also just having had a great reason to move to New York. It's just opened up my whole my whole life uh, in an incredible way. And then true to form, because I can't possibly do anything for more than a couple years in a row without switching gears entirely, my husband and I decided to start a family. So my new creative project is currently three weeks old. And adorable. He's pretty cute. I think we'll keep him. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, yeah, he's gotten to know a lot of music already in utero. He has heard... He's heard me sing Sariaho. He's heard me sing and play George Lewis. He's heard all sorts of things already. Heard the ruler, right? And yeah. he's very, very familiar with the Tarquino Merula lullaby that we'll hear on this concert. Um, so I'm thinking of bringing him um, because he's kind of an aficionado of this particular lullaby. It was a mainstay That's of my good. pregnancy. We need some Merula fans in the audience. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Yeah, he's one of he's one of the people most familiar, I think, um, with that particular song. It's so beautiful. And sometimes I just let let the words go and um, just hum it because it's really one of the most exquisite melodies. It's extraordinary. And and so this is this is Tarquinio Merula's um, Canzonetta Spirituale sopra la nonna. Uh, this was so it's a piece that that our our lutenist Arash Nuri, who is our um, one of our baroque mega experts in the group brought to to my attention, and I hadn't I had not heard it before at all. And of course, now I've asked you know a few different singers about it, and singers are like, "Oh yeah, definitely this this is good find." Um, and I love that I wrote to you about this concert specifically about the Sharino, thinking, "Well, you're definitely going to be a great person for this Sharino," and you were like, "That Marula is my favorite." <laughs> and I was like, "We." are so happy you can join us. This is going to be terrific. Um, and so Arash is going to be playing that with you and then also playing a solo by um, Piccinini. And I think it's time to play a little bit of music. This is Abhoilich by Matthew Welch, performed by myself uh, on clarinet, Doug Perry on vibraphone, and Daniel Schlossberg on piano. It's from our new album, 
Cantata Profana plays Matthew Welch live at the Stone, currently out on Kodakon Records. something to be said for continuing to resurrect those pieces that no longer have that bright shiny sheen on them of that premiere that world premiere they do tend to fall by the wayside and I I was thinking as I've been kind of dwelling in this Sharino space anticipating this concert that New York actually has kind of stopped seeing a lot of Sharino performances in the last I would say 10 years or so there was kind of a fascination with his repertoire, his vocabularies um, in the early 2000s. And that was, you know, New York Phil was doing stuff, like people were doing things here in New York. And then it sort of fizzled away. And, um, you know, for for positive forward steps as well. And we're featuring many more composers of color and, and many, many female identifying composers more and more. But it also means that some of that repertoire is just not getting heard. Yeah. So I think it's interesting to put it on programs. Yeah. That's one days. of the things that we love to do. And actually, it's sort of, it's sort of funny. But as we started doing that early on, we, you know, you don't, you don't always start performing music because you particularly see that it's missing somewhere else. You usually start because you're like, I want to do this. Of course. And yeah. then you find out, oh, the reason I had such a desire to do that was because nobody else was doing it. Nobody was asking us to do it. Nobody was giving any opportunities for that around. For so sure. that's why it seemed like such a thing to desire to do um and so the the idea of a 20th century canon uh has has existed for a long time but actually performing that is not something we see very often early 20th century stuff is slowly becoming part of the 19th century canon extended you know we have like that like a hundred years plus is acceptable for the big stage yeah. and then and, you get the revival at the hundred year mark, yeah right? exactly yeah. and then it's like allowed to enter into <laughs> exactly. the regular canon and be considered 
old music that is safe. Um, but the pieces that are 80 years old and 70 years old and 30 years old, that stuff is exactly, it's not performed often enough because it's sort of, it's like, oh yeah, we know about it. It had its day. It got performed. There was a great recording of it. We're going to put it into the history textbooks soon. And there's not a sense of like, oh, but actually that stuff was great. And we want to need to do it live. And it's like the reason we love Beethoven 5 is not because it got done once well. It's because enough people did it that now we like know how to really do it and love it and audiences go for it. Precisely. Yeah. And I think we're the ones that get to decide in 30, 40 years, which of those composers and which of those pieces stay represented on concert programs and not just in the history textbooks. Um, yeah, I think we get to we get to create the enthusiasm and energy around which pieces and, and works get go forward, I guess, in yeah. history. And I think that's fine. Absolutely. It's an awesome responsibility. Yeah. We're doing Galina Ustvolskaya's Symphony Number no. 5, which is subtitled Amen. And uh, Ustvolskaya is this absolutely fascinating figure. She's kind of gotten a really bad retelling of her story most of the time, where she's just like, oh, she was Shostakovich's protege. <laughs> and that's, that's how we know her. That's how she got famous. And it's, it's a very superficial material relationship. Right. That is based purely on arbitrary presence of octatonic scale and quarter notes. And I, I feel right. like that's that's like where the comparison lies. And they were like in the same place at the same time, <laughs> yeah. but she is very much her own woman and her own composer. How and... weird if we were to introduce each other on this podcast as various people's protégés yeah. <laughs> as opposed yeah. to right. our own yeah. identities. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. How strange. She's not been performed often here. Uh, and part of that, I think, does come from this sense of like, oh, well, it must be just sort of B-rate Shostakovich mm -hmm. instead yeah. of fascinating and extraordinary composer that she is. And so Gleb and I performed her uh, clarinet trio with Dan Schlossberg down at Spectrum in New York uh, many years ago. Speaking of that performance, uh, here's an excerpt from it. Ustvolskaya's um, trio, third movement, has played by myself, Jacob, and Dan Schlossberg.
absolutely love that piece. Now we're performing this, which I'll say we actually thought as we were going into it that we were going to be performing 30 years late, a New York premiere of this work, because which is a hard thing to figure out. It's sort of a, you, have to, you have to go into the archives to figure out. We looked around as far as we could and with the publisher and everything, and we thought, wow, it seems like nobody's actually done this. We found out recently that one other person has done it. It takes a small amount away from that New York premiere. It still means, yeah, one person in 30 years has programmed this work. Right. What are the chances that even one person at, at our concert in January will have heard that particular performance whenever that happened? Right. <laughs> a dozen years ago or whatever. Right. Uh, very low. So for the people who are, are there, it will be some sort of auditory live premiere, right? Yeah, absolutely. Sure. And the, so the piece is called, is t- subtitled Amen, and the text is simply the Lord's Prayer, the our, Lord's the, our prayer, Father, our Father, yeah. which Gleb will be doing in Russian. I think it's this entire piece is such a surreal convergence of what I know of Soviet culture and um, just how I've grown up with Christianity being this really ambiguous private thing. I mean, my family didn't impose it on me, and most of them practiced it, you know, very secretly. Then there is this whole spiritual, almost like Tarkovsky element, that is, I think, very indicative of of that period. And every time I listen to it, it, just the the little pianti and just like little dyads, you know, it's very rhetorical and it has very specific references, and it makes me think of Bach and what the Soviet life has kind of prescribed Bach to be for them. Mm. A, they have a very interesting relationship yeah. to Bach throughout for so many of them. Which which was kind of leading into the Piccinini Takata. We were thinking about this very top 40 Baroque feeling or something like so that. So why, why um, do you think that the all the Soviet composers were so sort of obsessed with Bach and had a very different associations, I think, than we do in the West with him. I think so much of it lies in the enormous amount of tension and release, and it's this continuous tension and release that works itself into a pulse, eventually, and it accumulates into something, you know, a prayer-like rhythm. Yeah, I, I would I would agree. So the Utvalskaya is scored for violin, oboe, tuba, trumpet, trumpet a speaker who is saying the Lord's Prayer and the percussion instrument that is used is a uh, what we think of as a Mahler 6 style wooden box because that was kind of the first time anybody wrote for an instrument like that. She has very specific dimensions for the box and how it is to be built and she has other works that she also writes for this instrument. It becomes a presence in her works like uh, I think composition number two is yeah. the other one that that has it especially in the 80s I, th- I think it became like a, a huge central a, point a, a central point yeah and so, so do you guys have this instrument has somebody built it oh we're gonna build it that's uh that's still on the to-do list well there I mean there exist a few I wonder if some of them are somebody in probably has one but it for sure like there's one more... in LA I know exactly it's um the where, where it is the Mahler box used uh, for Uspolska's specific specifications um that they used for I don't remember the title of the piece, but it's like a number of bases. Yeah, that's box. that's composition that's number, number two. two. That's yeah. I yeah. I mean what's great is if you the thing I think what's sort of fun about that piece is like if you were to know of somebody, let's say, in LA who has the right instrument for this, um I there's something that speaks to me of like the sparseness and the um 
the the impoverishment of a country too that you've decided to use this instrument which it would just be a lot cheaper to build it there's been a long tradition in the 20th century of composers trying to deal with different circumstances that are available to them this was particularly after like world war one when stravinsky would write for a small band and then all these chamber groups even emerged because of mostly financial issues and i think there's something amazing to just saying well i need percussion in this piece i need something that has a really strong voice i'm just going to make something up that you can build yourself at home and when you've been enumerating the instruments in, in this piece, it reminds me of the final Grisé piece, the four songs yeah. to cross the threshold, which is also which, one of my favorite works of all time. And really my favorite recording of that piece in existence. The, the, the video of you doing that, oh, I think. It, it's, cheers. In, in California, I, I don't remember exactly. like Was it in it LA? Was, yeah, it was yeah. a Monday evening concerts, yeah. which is the organization that, that, that also has the Muller box. That recording's Oh, thank you so much. Uh, that was, I mean, one of the highlights of my life. And I hope that this piece stays in my life throughout because of its sort of yeah. kind of vacillation between, again, the spiritual and kind of threshold places, which as someone who's just given birth, I've been living in this kind of threshold place. I'm very interested in that right now. Um, but that piece utilizes an extraordinary um, group of instruments, including three tubas. <laughs> yes. um, but the solo instruments have this sort of um, almost angelic quality, like you would imagine on a fresco or on a large uh, painting. You would imagine the angels or the cupids playing those instruments. And those are the trumpet, the um, the saxophone. Not in that case. The saxophones are actually uh, in the ensemble. They're not the solo instruments. It's violin, oh, flute, trumpet. Uh -huh. And you get these other kind of like oh, cool. places where they're being reverberated in deeper ways, you know? Um, and I wonder if some of her choices aren't a little bit of, of that, of that, of that too, Absolutely. that kind of spiritual element yeah. that harkens back to a different time, you know, yeah. to a time when all of that was much more you you had permission to engage with those sounds in that way. So this is me singing Les Quatre Chants pour Franchir le Seuil, the four songs to cross the threshold by Gérard Grisé. And this was a live performance with uh, the Monday Evening Concert Ensemble a couple years back.
We were um, we were talking about the, the the first piece on the program this um, by um, Alvin Lucier uh, a few weeks ago and um, the difference between pieces that are a meditation in the sort of capital M sense of the word and just pieces that are meditative and that's one of the things that I think is getting played with in this concert as well and so there's something in this first piece that I'm really excited about starting the program. I think it's a bold concert opener. And the piece is a little indeterminate length, so it could be seven minutes, it could be 14 minutes. It depends on how Dan, Dan Schlossberg, our pianist, is doing it. There's a lot of music that's been written, especially in this country, following minimalist ideas for the past 50, 60 years, that is about a kind of zoning out or a kind of zen or chilling out or other kinds of things that um, that are really attractive in a lot of ways, but they are also often very easy or escapist or escapist yeah Yeah. this concert is it's really asking like okay well what are the other paths that open up if we do that instead of as like a way of relaxing into this music a way of deeply focusing into it and so it's actually calling on the audience not to just let all your worldly cares go this is find out what happens when you get deep inside your own head and, and body it's gonna be a, and and it body. might be there are gonna be scary. some sensations in yeah. this concert yeah. for sure i mean you don't yeah. you don't have a muller box or a tuba or solo oboe or, or you know pots. yeah or like <laughs> even even a, a human voice you don't have those ingredients without having some serious sensory involvement and participation yeah, yeah. <laughs> um so I'm also not a huge fan of escapist new music, so I'm always I'm always interested in people kind of finding that corporeal and visceral engagement and and uh, participation. And then, so all of this kind of leads to the main work that's on the program, which is this piece by Salvatore Sharonino, who in the second half of the 20th century has been. A really, you know, he's one of the, he's one of the great living composers. He's gone through various different phases in his life, but he's always been very, I think, very attracted to different kinds of virtuosity, and uh, a lot of that has been using. I remember playing, you know, solo violin caprices of his, and he'll and it's basically like Paganini, but it's all harmonics. You know, it's. It's kind of insane. You look at the page and it looks like beautiful art on the page, but you're like, how the hell can I play that? Um, and, but he's pushing you to the to the extent. And this is a very different kind of virtuosity. It's not as many millions of notes as you can play. It's not even, it's not, It's there are extended techniques in it, but it's not about how quickly you can do those together. It's like a virtuosity of, of precision. 
Well, this will be the closer of the yeah. concert, right? So all of the pieces are sort of building into this space where we enter almost a theatrical realm. In this case, the the voice is the voice of this woman who has sort of prophetic visions that come out through floods of, of words. And so much so, so either she is she is being quiet and you experience kind of the world around her as her body and her mind are sort of brewing these these prophecies or she has these um, really long and sort of um, almost psych- psychotic episodes almost where she's kind of rushing into some level of, of storytelling or some le- level of uh, prophesying. And we have around her these people who are helping to to write down what she's saying. All of these things were coming out so fast and so furiously that a single person wouldn't do wouldn't do the trick. So um, she needed eight people around her, four to be uh, repeating after her and four to be writing those things down. Um, so I think in some ways we have a buildup instrumentally of these people attending her. And it's very quiet. There's a lot of anticipation, um, creaks maybe of chairs yeah. or of someone's pen ready to go, um, building up. And, you know, maybe seven minutes go by before the first I utterance. I think it's about seven minutes. Yeah. It, the anticipation of the first entrance. And is... this is what Sharino yeah. excels cool. at. Um, and through his through his work as a composer, I think. Um, but he, he allows perception to go all the way to its limit of almost expectation or boredom and then something happens and i think that's where he truly excels and this piece takes that i think to you know the thousandth degree um and allows us to take that into a theatrical realm with many instruments with the whole sound world um and just at the moment where you think you can name the pattern is when something new will happen and so i think we've built uh well you guys have built a program that um that allows the listener to engage with that in in a very personal way. Like everybody will be invited into this moment. So I'm super excited about getting to be that voice. <laughs> I, I think that there's, I mean, I, I, it's sort of like, I feel almost comfortable saying this is maybe the most suspenseful work in some particular sense, the most suspenseful work that I can think of. Waiting with bated breath is, is, is literally true in this and the work yes yeah, a 30 minute long work and you know if you were looking at the the sound wave of the recording it's mostly silence but the silence is so strong and so palpable and if i were to just you know walk into a room and hear this piece it would be a little disorienting it would be sort of over the top it would be hard to really grapple with and so that i think Everything that we've put on the rest of the program has been about trying to find a way to get people to the place where they can be ready for a piece like this. On that note, uh, we would like to remind you again uh, that our next show is coming up in just a week on January 18th and 19th at St. Peter's Church, Chelsea. Uh, Both shows at 8pm. This is Visions of Silence. Uh, Tickets are available at cantataprofana.com slash tickets. Subscribe to us on iTunes. Visit our YouTube page uh, and subscribe there as well. And check out our new live album of Matthew Walsh's music at the Stone on Bandcamp. Thank you so much for listening to the CP Podcast. 
see you soon, and we will leave you with one of Sibelius's magical incidental songs from uh, the Twelfth Night from our show Old Catches and New Fancies a few years ago as performed by Arash Nuri and Peter Walker. Oh!